On the show today, I'll be joined by two very special guests. First up is George Solomon, who is the creator and star of Oh What A Night, which is currently touring Australia. Then it's my chat with legendary film critic David Stratton. All that and more on today's episode of Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Benjamin May and McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and joining me on the show today is two very special guests. First up is my chat with George Solomon, who is the co-creator and star of Oh What A Night, which is currently on its fourth tour of Australia and has played to sold-out crowds worldwide. Then it's my chat with David Stratton, who's best known for hosting At The Movies with Margaret Pomerantz on the ABC and SBS for 30 years. Now, just a quick note about my interview with David. Uh, unfortunately, we, we recorded that one outside. Uh, it was the only location offered to us. And the background noise got in the way a bit, so we have edited it as much as we can. We've removed as much background noise as we can, but it does sound a little bit tinny, and it's not up to the usual standards of our recordings but uh, we still wanted to play that for you, so I thought I'd just give you the heads up, because it is a fascinating chat, and we do hope you enjoy it, as uh, David does have a movie coming out, all about his life and cinema and Australian film, which is out on March 9 as well. But first up, here's my chat with George Solomon. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Now, George, what inspired you to become a performer? I the time I was very, very young. I mean, really, my first memories of being able to walk or talk, I always liked singing and dancing. And in our house, there are seven kids in our family, and my brothers and sisters, I have many that are older, 10, 15 years older than me. And so in our house, all the time, the music of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons was playing, and the Supremes and Smokey Robinson. I, I just, this music was in me from the time that I could remember being alive. And it's all I ever wanted to do was perform. And it's great that all these years later, especially doing Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons music, because these songs really do have a very special place in my heart. I was, all, I was inspired by the people that I'm still listening to now. Mm. And obviously the show that we're here to talk about today, Oh What A Night, uh, is touring around Australia. And you actually wrote the script for the, sh for the show. So where did the idea spring from? The idea came from our director, Michael Chapman a great producer-director who has done so many wonderful productions, and he had written and directed a solo show for myself, and I was still performing the show all over the world on cruise ships, and the show was going very well for many years, and it's still I'm still doing it, but he said, you know, you've been doing the show for so long, how about we do something different? And in my show, I was singing songs by Neil Diamond and, and Elvis and Tom Jones and not Frankie Valli, and he said, you do a good Frankie Valli, maybe would you like to do a whole show of Frankie Valley songs? And I said, yeah, that would be just great. And we auditioned three other guys for the show, but they were so talented that I didn't want to be a lead singer and three backups. So what makes our show, Oh, What a Night, so unique is that all three guys, all four of us take turns singing lead. Since we're not a biography, we're not playing Frankie Valley or Bob Gaudio. We're being ourselves on stage. So we all get a chance to to be showcased in the show and have a lot of fun with each other. Mm. And you've been doing this for quite a while now, so have you seen the show evolve or change at all over the course of its many performances? Well, what changes about the show is interaction with the audience. The show is set, and 
and you know, we we, cha- we, we try to make improvements and, and change the show a little bit where we can, but we are doing the music of Frankie Valley in the four seasons, so you are restricted by what you're going to sing <laughs> every now and then. Somebody will come up to us and say, oh, could you sing Sweet Caroline? <laughs> well, thank you, but it's, you know, it's a great Neil Diamond song, but it's not Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. So we definitely have, have a formula and a format that we have to stick to. But what happens in the show is there's just a spontaneity with live theater, and the crowds have been great, and we have so much fun with each other on stage that you know, things always come up during the show that makes every performance a unique one. Hmm. And has there ever been any interaction with the audience, sort of like a heckler moment that you can recount that's been quite enjoyable or memorable? Oh, sure. We've got a lot of those. We have, we have people who have been, how shall I say, overserved, maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> who get a little carried away. We've had people come right up to the stage, come right onto the stage, and just get a little bit carried away and, and go right up to one of the guys or try to hug him and kiss him right on the stage and, uh, We've, we've had moments like that. We have people who just, who during moments when we're talking, just get carried away and want to yell out and they want to talk to us as if, you know, <laughs> you're trying to move on with the show and then they're, they're wanting to have a full-on conversation with you. Uh, many, many moments like that. I, I, I've had uh, a lot of instances. I've had, I had my pants fall down on stage one time. Which was just, which is an experience you never forget. Uh, the, my pants were velcroed because I was underdressed. I had clothes underneath, and the velcro had let go, let go, and my pants were slipping down to my knees while I was while I was doing the show. So, yeah, there's moments like that that you never forget. Oh, you certainly can't forget moments like that, no. And um, being in in Vegas for for a while, does that bring you a different kind of audience to the audiences you might get here in Australia? Benjamin is that the, the audiences are the same. You would think so, and we thought that too. In fact, when we came to Australia for the first time, this is our fourth tour, when we came the first time, people said, well, be prepared that people might be a little bit more reserved. They're not like what you're used to in the States or in Las Vegas, and we didn't find that to be true at all. We thought they were rowdy and crazy and fun, and we thought, this is, this is the show gets the same reaction because I think that this music goes worldwide. I just think that people love these songs. They're so catchy. The harmonies are beautiful. That people just relate to these songs, and it just it brings out a certain reaction in them. It's just I like to say our show is an all-around feel-good show. You can't leave that theater not feeling great. I just people were dancing up the aisles at the end of it. We and we meet the people afterwards, and we love hearing their reactions. And, we love people saying, gee, I thought I'd like it. I didn't know I'd love it this much. I didn't know it would be so funny. I didn't know there would be so much dancing. Mm. So, yeah, it's, uh, this, this, the songs themselves make the, make the show timeless. And obviously this is your, as you said, fourth tour to Australia. So what do you love about performing in, in our country? We love, we love the people. I, I love, <laughs> I know you think we have accents. I love, I love listening to the people talk. I love meeting them after the show, and I think the country is just beautiful. Every place we go, we just we're, we just think it's a it's a it's a beautiful place to perform, and we love the theaters. Some of the beautiful old theaters have a lot of history in them, and we've just the four of us have been having just the best time being here. With with your, your people have treated us with so much love that they make us feel very very at home here. Mm. And seeing you've been doing this for such a, a long time now, how do you ensure the performances and the songs stay fresh every night? We t- 
talk about that amongst ourselves sometimes. The songs are so good, and the show was so much fun that every night in performing them is like we're doing it for the first time. And you have to remember that when you're on stage. You have to remember that the people are seeing the show for the first time. You have to keep it as fresh. And it's easy for us to do it because the material is so good. Just the other night, one of our guys was saying, you know, I've done a lot of shows where by now I would have been sick of doing it, but I never get sick of doing this show. And this is going on. We started the show in 2008. And you have, we started off as four in Vegas, but the show grew so rapidly, there are over 40 different guys doing the show. And we're lucky to have three of the originals here on the tour. That never happens. The, the, three, we're, the original guys are almost never together because we're always branched out doing the show with other cast members. So it's very special. It's a reunion for us. Very special for us to come together and, and do the show. And initially, back in 2008 with these guys, what was the rehearsal process like bringing the whole thing together for the very first time? It was a work in progress. Things were tailored to specific talents. As I've mentioned, since we're not doing a biography, we're all playing ourselves. We're not playing Frankie. We're, and we're, so each guy in the show is featured. And it was a workshop where we saw who was good at this, who did this song the best, who would be the best for this, and whose character. There's a lot of comedy in the show. So we tailored the dialogue after the individual personalities of the guys, too. And when the show's over, people really feel they've gotten to know Rick and, and George and, and Paul. They, they, they get, they, they, it's just kind of like, uh, I always say, it's, it's like a fun party that's being hosted by four guys. And that, that, that's what the process was. It was just workshopping it, seeing who was best for which song, who was best for which dialogue. And that's how the show evolved. And clearly it's been hugely successful. So what do you think are the key elements to make a show work for so long and in so many different countries around the world? I think, you have, first of all, you have to start with the great music of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Right away, you, you got that going for you. You got 50% of it right there. But we aren't just four guys on stage singing. It's, it's, I think it's the dancing. I think it's the humor. And I think it's the... I think our director, Michael Chapman, also has a knack for just bringing out the best in everybody, and he's, he's a great show doctor. He knows what works and what doesn't work. I think that's why this show, if I do say so myself, stands above many other tributes, and it's been acknowledged as such by uh, a lot of people in the industry as being a really superior tribute show. And it's just because it was put together so well and performed and, and done in such a loving way. And I don't think you can mask that. We really are enjoying each other on the stage. Mm. So the world has changed a lot and the entertainment spectrum has changed a lot since 2008. How have you seen the industry evolve around you while you're still with the, the one show? It changed quite a bit and I don't know if it's all for the better. I, I think that and I don't want to sound old when I say this, but I think the music that we're doing now was of an era where people had great voices and you really could, the songs told a story and there were live musicians playing on all of the, all of the records that you heard. And I think now a lot of singers can be auto-tuned. You don't even have to be the best singer. There's, there's so much work that can be done in the studio to make records sound better. Now, as I, I just think the performers back then had to work so hard too. They were on tour. They had to really, they really had to hone their craft. Whereas now, you can make a music video to promote your song. 
over the world. So I, I do think the music, the, and you have, there are talented people now. There certainly are some very talented people out there. You know, I think Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars, and uh, uh, there's a lot of talent. But uh, I, I still tend to throw myself back to the other era when I, when I'm listening to music. If I'm listening in my car and I've got a current station on, I, I tend to keep going back to the to the oldies. Mm. Certainly, music has changed, and you're right. It's not all for the better. Auto tune just hurts my eardrums sometimes. <laughs> now, um, where can listeners see your shows all over the world? Because obviously, you're here in Australia, but we've got listeners everywhere. So you've got forty odd productions. Where where can people find the show? Well, if they go to our website, oh what a night tribute dot com, and you make sure you put the word tribute in there. It's <laughs> oh what a night tribute dot com. You can see the dates where it's playing everywhere, including on cruises all over the United States, and when we go out of the country as well, all of our dates are listed there, and that's how they can find out where, where to come and catch our, our show. Wonderful, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but before we let you go, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the performance industry? I think the advice would be, do everything you can to keep performing. Take every Take every opportunity, take every job that you can. Learn, you learn by doing. I would say just keep singing if you want to, if you want to perform, if you want to sing, just keep singing. Do something every day that is, is, is your craft. Do something every day to move towards your goals. And if you're doing what you love to do, it, you will succeed. You know, you, there are different levels of success. You know, you might not be on the cover of every magazine, but if you're doing what you love to do, then you are a success. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for your wise words today, George, and your time, and all the best with the tour. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was my chat with George Solomon, and the link to the tour dates for Oh What A Night is in the show notes for the podcast. Now is my chat with David Stratton. As previously mentioned, the audio quality on this one isn't up to scratch. We have fixed it as best we can, but just a little warning that it may not sound up to our usual standards. But David is a fascinating guest and a true Australian icon. So uh, bear with us, sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. It's a true pleasure to have you here. Now, David, where did your love of film stem from? Uh, it, it started during the war. I'm very old. Um, so I, I lived uh, during World War II in a small town in England. Uh, my father was in the British Army, so he was off fighting in the Far East in Burma. Uh, my mother was volunteering for the Red Cross, and I was cared for by my grandmother. And she, I think, was probably quite a lonely woman, and uh, she took me to the cinema four times a week. There were three cinemas in town. One of them changed its program every week. Um, it didn't matter to her what kind of film it was, and she got a lot of trouble from my mother for taking me to unsuitable films, but she didn't really care, and certainly I didn't care. Um, so from a very early age, I got hooked on this idea that, that uh, there was a movie to see almost every day, four days. Um, then the war ended, and my father came home, thankfully, and uh, we moved away, and suddenly my, my film uh, experience dried up immediately, and... Um, and it was like a, an addict needing a fix, really. I suppose I would do anything to go to the cinema. My parents would thought it was a waste of time. Uh, what are you doing going to the cinema on a nice day like this? You should be out in the fresh air, you know, all that sort of thing. So, but exactly why I became obsessed, I really, I think it was, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why, but it's something like that. 
And obviously you made a career out of it, and you've seen, I think it's safe to say, thousands of films. So does going to the cinema ever lose its magic? Yes. Um, it, these days it loses its magic if there are people uh, talking or texting on their mobile phones around me. Um, I find that incredibly bad. It's horrible. Um, so I do tend to try and go to the cinema when I think the cinema will be empty, or as near as empty as, as it can be, um, and uh, that usually solves the problem. But it's just amazing, even even at the big film festivals, you see people texting up their mobile phones. I don't know why they can't just devote a couple of hours to watching the film and not ruin it for anybody else. You've got to commit to watching movies. You would have thought so. Two hours. Now, you've obviously been around for a while and you've seen a lot of evolution and growth in the film industry. Do you think the introduction of platforms like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Stan are good for the film industry? Um, I'm, I think anything that gives people an opportunity to see films uh, as, as reasonably priced as, as possible is, is good. Um, I can't really speak from personal experience. I actually tried subscribing to both Netflix and Stan and had the depressing experience of going through them. And there was nothing I wanted to see. I'd either seen everything or there was stuff that I just had no desire to, to see. So um, uh, I'm sure there are probably other streamers where there's something for me, but I haven't found it yet. So I, I, if I'm looking for films, I, I, I tend to be. And if you were able to reshape the film industry to your liking as it is today, what would you change and what would you do to make it better? You mean the American film industry or the... Uh... I think the American film industry is probably the largest market, so if you were sure. able to change that. Well, I, I, I think I would um, call a halt to endless superhero films. Um, lousy comedies where uh, farting and defecating is supposed to be funny. Um, I, I would make, I would personally, uh, I'd probably lose a lot of money, but I'd probably, I would personally make more films like Manchester by the Sea or Moonlight or, or uh, films that mean something, films that are about something, films that engage with you emotionally. Um, those are the sorts of films that I like. And I don't mind whether they're American or French or Patagonian, you know, as long as they, as long as they are made with dedication and passion. And, uh, I mean, Martin Scorsese is a director who is passionate about what he does, and you can see that in every frame of his films. And some of his films obviously are better than others, um, but, but he's a, a, a man of cinema and a man of passion. You mentioned the wave of superhero movies that have sort of overtaken Hollywood in the past few years. In your opinion, has there ever been a good superhero movie? Probably. <laughs> um, I must say The Dark Knight, I, I thought had some, some qualities. Um, not least because of Heath Ledger's uh, performance. Um, but I just find them all a bit, a bit the same. I mean, I went to see Logan earlier this week. Um, hoping for something a little bit different. And it is actually a little bit different. But it, it's one of these films that has an awful lot of fairly 
graphic violence going around a 10 year old child. Mm. And I guess I'm old fashioned enough to kind of not appreciate that. So I came away feeling not too happy about Logan. And you mentioned films like Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea, yeah. which have been two of my favourite releases of the last five years. <laughs> but both of them are competing at the Academy Awards yeah. on Monday. Yeah. Which way are you calling it? Who do you think is going to take the best okay. picture? Uh, I've written a piece this morning in the Australian, and I think I say, I think mm. it'll probably be Moonlight. Mm -hmm. um, but I could be wrong. Obviously, I easily could be wrong. I don't think Moonlight would be my choice. My choice would be Manchester by the Sea, or I'm also a big fan of La La Land. I'm also a big fan of Hell or High Water, and I'm a big fan of Arrival. It's a very good year this year. It has, it has yeah. been one of the best years in cinema I think we've yeah. seen for a while. It's good. Hell or High Water was grossly underappreciated yeah. both at the box office and by critics. Yeah. Why do you by think critics, that was? was I, I saw, I mean, from just the critics scene that I've seen here in Adelaide, right. it did not do nearly as well as I personally thought it would do. I thought it was really, really good, mm. um, and funny, and dark, and, and um, sardonic, and Jeff Bridges is just great in it, and um, no, I, I, I thought it was terrific. Certainly is. Now, you've got a documentary coming out here in Australia on March 9 about your life and love of cinema, but especially Australian film. Yeah. So, Australian film has sometimes takes a back seat, especially here in Australia, for big American releases. Yeah. How do you think we can change and reshape Australian culture to appreciate some of the great Australian films? I think uh, it, it's a hard thing, not only for Australia, but for any film-producing country faced with the Hollywood juggernaut, because mm. there's so much money and so much promotion and so much, um, so much uh, behind the big Hollywood releases that they tend to swamp everything. Uh, and whether whether you're in Korea or, or Italy, it'd be the same story. Um, local films tend to take a back seat unless once in a while something really outstanding or really different or something that really catches the imagination comes along, like Lion has done uh, this year, and it seems to be Fury Road did last year. Um, although that's a very American-like Australian film. Um, but I think there's a, there's a niche audience for Australian films, a loyal niche audience for Australian films. It tends to skew older, um, and one of the disadvantages of that, sadly, I think, is that an older audience tends not to want genre films. And some of the most interesting Australian films in the last few years have been genre films. I'm thinking of something like The Babadook, for example, or Predestination are two outstanding films, but they didn't do anything here in Australia because I think that older audience says, I don't want to see a horror film, or I don't want to see a science fiction film. Um, whereas I think overseas there's much younger audiences who will see those films overseas because there's no baggage attached. I don't know quite why young audiences here won't embrace those Australian genre films, but for some reason they don't seem to. Maybe they think they can see them without having to go to the cinema to see them. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But whatever it is, I was very disappointed by those two films, particularly because I thought they were both outstanding. Mm. And Jasper Jones is another Australian film, which yeah. I thought was very good. Yeah. But they've picked the same release date as Logan, which yeah. seems <laughs> counterintuitive. Do you think they could be 
almost a push for Australian films to avoid competing with the Hollywood juggernaut. It's very hard. I mean, you know, they, they, they plan these things months ahead, even years ahead in some cases. Um, I think the problem is that there's not, there just isn't the budget to give Australian films the same kind of profile, anywhere near the same. Now, uh, in France, for, for instance, they have a wonderful system which we could never introduce here, which is that a percentage of every ticket sold at the French box office, whether it's an American film, whether it's Star Wars, or, or Manchester by the Sea, a percentage, don't ask me what percentage, but let's, let's say it's 8%, um, goes into a fund by law, uh, and that fund, uh, as you can imagine, the French are a huge cinema-going audience, so all, every single film, ticket sold in France goes into this fund. That fund is administered, uh, and it's and it, it, the money is divided into film production, into film uh, distribution and promotion, and into international promotion. Which is why you get these French film festivals uh, supported by Unifrance, which is the company that is financed out of this money. Now that was a system that was set up after. The, Immediately after the Second World War, 1946, the Americans would the Americans hated the convention. They hated. I remember back in the 70s when, when Star Wars came out and Jaws and films like this, and the Americans were spitting chips. That percentage of their money was going into some poncy French film. They hated. But it's a system that's worked. Um, now you could never introduce it here. No. The Americans just wouldn't be tra trade war if you tried to do that. Uh, but because it's sort of there, and nobody's quite got around to stopping it, um, but if they did stop it, the French cinema would be decimated in the market. So it just shows you, you, it, it gives them the money to promote and market the films, which we don't have. No, we don't, and we need to, I think some more government support would be nice for the film and entertainment industry. These days, I can't see it happening. Now, I do have to let you go because you've got a few other interviews, but finally, what advice would you offer to any young filmmakers who are looking to try and enter the industry at this point in time? Well, I think um, all I can say to anybody who wants to make films, on one level, it's easier to make films today than it's ever been before. You can go out and make it. Um, the problem is getting it shown, getting it seen. And, um, I mean, in my day, when you had to buy film and then develop the film and then edit the film, it was prohibitively expensive. So but that didn't get done. So um, today it's easy, to, or easier anyway, to make the film. Um, but the problem is, is to find ways of showing it. And I think, sometimes I think, you've got to think outside the house and find different ways of exhibiting these films. I mean, back in the 70s, some of the young filmmakers in Sydney and Melbourne established filmmakers' co-ops. And, and uh, they had screenings uh, uh, of their new short films, and they made feature films, they made feature films. And, um, and they were very popular. Hmm. And uh, maybe something like that needs to be considered. Um, they found just an old place, you know, it wasn't fashionable. Um, today, again, it's much easier. So much easier. Um, except, of course, you've got fire. 
got to follow the regulations when that sort of stuff. But it should be possible, and um, I, I, I know that there are heaps of films being made in this country, feature films, that never see the light of day. People send them to me, and I look at them, and some of them are not very good, but some of them are very good. And uh, I, uh, I just think um, they've just got to find a way to, to show them without relying on distributors, because the distributors will rip you off anyway. So. Well, thank you very much for your time today, David, and all the best for the film. <coughs> thank you very much. That was my chat with Australian legend David Stratton. Once again, we do apologise for the audio quality, but we hope you still were able to enjoy the interview. Now, as always, don't forget to check out our fantastic supporters, Palace Nervous Cinemas, Mad Zombie Collectibles, and Via Vision Entertainment. All their details are on the website, preacherspodcast.net. And as always, don't forget to check out our movie reviews. There are some great new movies out. And if you like, you can even go back and see how many of the Oscar predictions I got wrong. So there's a lot to check out under the movie review section of the website. Well, we'll be back on March 1st with an interview with the cast of Trainspotting Live, which is currently touring Australia as well. So stay tuned for that. But until then, I've been your host, Benjamin Mann. Okay, see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>